Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Glenn Davidson, the former Executive Director of Enterprise Services at the Commerce Department, and now the, the Human Capital Transformation Executive at Deloitte. Glenn, welcome to the program. This is an exit interview of sorts. Say it again. Thanks for having me. We've got a chance to hang out over the years and talk about shared services, which is what we're going to focus on today. I know you're not necessarily a quote-unquote CIO, but so much of what you did and so much of what's happening across government around shared services really does affect CIOs, and that's why I wanted to have you on the show. So let's just start with the basics. Your role at Commerce over the last three years, you were the Director of Enterprise Services. What does that really mean? And then why did you decide to leave Commerce now? As the Executive Director of Enterprise Services, I was responsible for standing up and running what is the first cabinet department level multifunction shared services operations in the federal government. So Enterprise Services today delivers human resources, acquisition, and information technology services to the 47,000 employees who work there. In time, it will also provide financial management services. Why did I leave Commerce? And I'm really glad you asked that question because a lot of people don't understand why I would leave such a great job. But I joined Commerce as a limited-term senior executive. So my three-year term ended last October. It was just time for me to go. People sometimes lose sight that sometimes people join like you did just for a short amount of time, make a difference. And, and it's so interesting because so much we hear about executives can come in, make a difference, and then leave. And so many administrations want that back and forth, but there aren't great examples of someone like yourself. So talk maybe about your experience with and at Commerce. Jumping in for three years, it doesn't seem like a long time, but, but I imagine at times it felt very long. At times, it did feel very long. But I'm really glad, in retrospect, that I was brought in as a limited-termer. And the reason being is that I was not concerned about my federal career, right? People will make decisions largely on the basis of the impact of their long-term career. I did not, right? My decisions were ultimately to help them achieve their ambitions of having a fully transformed set of services delivered to those um, employees of the department. So it meant that, you know, I had a limited term in which to get this done, and so I just had to push hard and and fast. And we're going to get into some of those details about what you did, what you accomplished. But before I do that, let's talk about your new role, at Deloitte. Uh, when I look at your LinkedIn page, you've been with other consultancies. So this is not a new world for you, but talk about your role at Deloitte. I'm delighted to be here. I will continue to help governments and other public sector organizations improve the overall experience of their employees and candidates for employment with the services that they receive. Um, I expect to employ my skills in engaging people, leveraging technology, uh, re-engineering processes, and even introducing alternative service delivery models in order to help our clients achieve their transformational ambitions. So, you know, if I can't do it on the inside, I'm going to do it from the outside and help advise people on how to do that. Will you be working with just the federal side or state and local, tribal governments, and even some nonprofits? What excites me about Deloitte more specifically is that in the last year, they have merged their state and local with their federal business. So they recognize that the synergies exist between these these various government entities. And so I will be able to cross back and forth. But to your point, I, I should also be able to provide continued support to multilaterals, um, non-governmental organizations, and other not-for-profits. 
Very nice. Sounds like a good job. And, and as I've said, you've, you're you're no stranger to the world of consultancy. So I'm sure that's where you're you're most comfortable. So let's tag back because most of our conversation is going to focus on your time at Commerce and the impact you have. And one of the things that when when you were brought in to to kind of really change the way Commerce approached these back offices, these, these administrative services, is shared services was rough. There was not a lot of success stories in the government. So maybe talk about your approach. What did you do at Commerce? How did it work? When I got there, Commerce clearly had a burning platform for change. The delivery of mission-enabling services, what we called HR, finance, IT, and acquisition services, have long been substandard at Commerce. I mean, I think Commerce largely paid less for those services than many other federal departments and agencies, but the quality also was exceedingly substandard. And so the poor quality and timeliness of those services were beginning to impede career professionals' ability to achieve their bureau's missions. That's important point to make. So the principal reason for moving to shared services was not to decrease costs. Commerce's leadership wanted these functional areas to perform better, to provide greater transparency in the provision of the services, and to give employees just a better experience. Now, over time, with you know constraining budgets, cost is also important. So I've always had to keep my eye on, you know, what does it cost today, and what is it going to cost tomorrow, and how do I continue to to achieve cost avoidance and cost savings? So you got the leadership buy-in, which was key, because as you know, in, in any big initiative, when you're going to talk about major culture change, you need that leadership buy-in. Walk me through what you did over the, the three years. Where did you start? Because there's so much to start from, and no one is at zero. It's not like you got a fresh sheet of paper. You have a lot of paper that's already been inked up and messed with and torn and ripped. So how did you start? And the reason why I want to go into this level of detail, Glenn, is so many of your your other agencies, the people who you potentially will be supporting through Deloitte, your work at Deloitte, are now being asked to go through this. And I've written about this many times that I think Commerce Department, what you did specifically, can be a really great model for the rest of government. Well, thank you for that, Jason. I'll start by saying the first thing we did was what we always call a current state assessment. And that was largely to understand on both a quantitative and qualitative basis how services are being delivered today. So all of the pain points that related to it. And I mean, it's very important that you understand the quantitative aspect, because I think most federal agencies and departments really don't know what the true total cost is of delivering those services. So it's your baseline. It is your baseline that you need, that you're going to cite chapter and verse many times over. Finally, the next step that you take was I did a comparative analysis, to your point. I mean, I looked at other organizations of similar size, scope, geographic footprint, both commercial and government, to ultimately see, you know, how they compared and where those differences occurred. And in many cases, I learned that this could be done significantly at reduced cost, but also improved quality. So from there, ultimately, you have to make that, after you've done that comparative analysis, you go and, and you, I built a business case, and a business case with a really robust financial model so that I could demonstrate to everybody within the department what the total cost of getting into the shared services business was and when people could expect to see a return on that investment. The point really being it takes money to save money, and to be able to do that meant you're going to have to stand up an operation. It's going to take people. It's going to take money. It's going to take technology, ultimately, to help stand up that operation and then ultimately drive out those costs and improve quality. And I think that's a, little, that's a lot different than what a lot of other organizations have done. I'm going to interrupt you real quick because I want you to repeat something. You said something about money. Remind me of that because I want to hammer this point home real quick. 
So the point I'm going to make is it takes money to save money. Wait a minute. I want, I want, I want, to, put, direct- I want to put that on a loop for everyone out there because I think the, the challenge we've seen time and again is nobody wants to spend the money to, 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 to save the money. So <laughs> repeat that one more time for me. It takes money to save money. All right. Now tell me why. <laughs> and, and the reason being is you can't transform on a large-scale business a set of operations without investing in them first. If you think about it, the federal government has underinvested in their technology and in their process and their people on all of their mission support operations. And so some of these technology platforms are many, as many as 20 or 30 years old. Many of the people that are currently working there are fairly you know, have been doing the same thing over and over again for that 20 or 30 years. And finally, the processes have not changed whatsoever. So largely, you need to go in there and you need to actually step-by-step re-engineer those processes, reskill these people, train them on how to use the new technology that you have just deployed to be ultimately to be able to deliver a better quality service at reduced cost. Glenn, I want to go back to something because you mentioned the baseline, and, and the baseline is key here because so many times agencies really don't understand how much they're spending for a service because they don't quite get how much does it cost for the building or for the lights or the air conditioning and heat. How did you go about figuring all that out? Because, again, if you don't know where you're starting from, you really don't know where you can go. Most people, when I have talked about their total of their current cost of delivering a service, they're looking at labor costs. And even when they're looking at labor costs, they're looking at not their fully loaded labor costs, meaning they're they're forgetting about even their health and welfare benefits in addition to their salary. But I have to go beyond that. I have to look at the facilities that they sit in and and the electricity that is being used for the lights and for the computers. I have to look at the technology platform that is ultimately being employed to provide that, including the operations, daily operations and maintenance costs associated with it. So I have to take in as much as I possibly can to, to determine what the, those total costs would be to get a real baseline. How difficult was that? I mean, did you have to go to the facilities people and say the square foot of the Commerce Department is, you know, 75,000 square feet and I have 3,000 square feet for this effort. So that's a percentage of, of the total cost. Like, Give me a sense of how it's done, because I think so many other CIOs and others, when they listen to this, they're going to be like, great, that was easy for Glenn, but I can't do the same thing, when in fact they probably can. Well, I think you can. A lot of this information currently exists within the systems that we have. Um, Even to the point when I went into commerce, nobody really knew how many people were ultimately employed in the Department of Commerce. So... You need to look at the systems because a lot of the, a lot of that information is contained therein. But for instance, in the cost of delivering service, I would look at, let's say, on average, an employee sits in 150 square feet, and within that 150 square feet, I can I can break down the co- lease costs of that space to 150 feet. I can also break down the electrical costs and other services that are being provided to that 150 feet. So largely, it's quite an exercise, but at the end of the day, I can get to a pretty close approximation of what those total costs would be. And this is something that's done all the time in the private sector. I mean, you're not doing anything with smoke and mirrors and magic. It's just you're taking those private sector best practices and applying them to government and it just and then adding a little bit of elbow grease, if you will, because the data is not, not so easy to find sometimes. You're so right. And I do have to make some assumptions along the way where I can't necessarily get the information that I need. I have to use it basically on make some good guesses. 
based on the information that I have from other organizations as to what those costs would be. But you've got to start somewhere. And here's the reason why. Because two years, three years down the road, somebody's going to say, you know, have you achieved any sort of cost savings in addition to the quality improvement? That happened to me. And so clearly I can go back and say, okay, this is what it cost for you to deliver a personal action request. This is what, it, this is what you're paying for it today. Yes, you have already received this this discount in that price. That's a great place to take a quick break. We come back, we can talk about some of those successes you did achieve while at Commerce over the last three years. My guest is Glenn Davidson, the former executive director of enterprise services at the Commerce Department and the current human capital transformation executive at Deloitte. I'm Jason Miller. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Here's Travis Methvin, Director, U.S. Navy Commercial Cloud Services, on the Federal Executive Forum on Defense and Homeland Cloud Computing, sponsored by Wasabi Technologies. To get from the crawl, walk, run, you really have to start looking at the applications. You have to start looking at the value of the applications, but then you have to start going, well, does it make sense to move them in the cloud, or do we come to grips with, we have to have a hybrid? And I think we're coming to grips with, we will have some sort of hybrid. To listen to the whole program from Treza Media Group, log on to federalnewsnetwork.com search Federal Executive Forum. Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage makes storing data in the cloud not just an alternative, it makes it a priority. Revolutionary storage technology that's radically cheaper and faster than traditional options like Amazon S3 allows you to reallocate your data storage budget to other projects and initiatives. And you can do it knowing that your data is being stored with the highest security and protection available. Learn more and even see for yourself with a free trial at wasabi.com. That's wasabi.com. Here's Lisa Sherwin-Wolf, Director of Marketing for Federal and National Government at SolarWinds on Market Chat, bringing clarity to the clutter in government marketing. Some people are heavily immersed in social media. Others really enjoy webinars. Some sneak out once in a while for conferences. So as I'm looking at these campaigns, I look at who am I trying to reach? Where are they going for information? And I found having a mix of those different activities with consistent themes across has really worked best. Listen to the whole program to learn how to become a cybersecurity thought leader at federalnewsnetwork.com. Search Market chat. This is Luann Brossman, president and founder of Government Marketing University. To support next generation government marketers, we continue to expand our offerings to include more training, networking events, and professional development programs. Go to gmarku.com, that's gmarku.com, and subscribe to our e-newsletter and see a calendar of all of our upcoming GMarku activities. Government Marketing University, bringing clarity to the clutter in government marketing. So, so then I said, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> when you're fearless, you can't help but laugh out loud. That's why I have FEP Blue Dental, with no co-pays for preventive care, zero deductibles for most in-network services, and even covered white fillings. It gives me plenty of reasons to smile. You can learn more at fepbluedental.com. Limitations and exclusions apply. See the 2019 FEP Blue Dental brochure for details. Tom Temin here. Coming up on Friday's Federal Drive, what can you say in the office about impeachment or other politically divisive issues? The rules can be tricky, but we'll try to sort it out. Plus, the National Academy of Public Administration invites you to weigh in with what you think are the grand challenges in public administration and what to do about them. Join me Friday morning starting at 6 for the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Read what's on the minds of your colleagues. Download our free executive surveys at Federal News Network. Search surveys. 
Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jason Miller. My guest is Glenn Davidson, the former executive director of enterprise services at the Commerce Department and currently the human capital transformation executive at Deloitte. Now, Glenn, as I mentioned earlier on, this is an exit interview of sorts. You spent the last three years really shepherding, changing, improving the way the Commerce Department and their back office operations deliver services. And because of the focus that the Trump administration and really the last three administrations have had on shared services, I think it was a, it's a great time to sit down with you and learn from your experiences and have you share them. So we were just talking about how you kind of got prepared, how you started to march down the path. And the last thing was uh, you mentioned uh, was developing a business case. Walk me through what that business case looked like, and then we're going to talk about your successes. So our business case was for all of those mission-enabling services in one, but we could also, we had enough data to ultimately separate it into individual functional areas like HR, finance, IT, and acquisition. But the important point is, is that in that business case, like most any you know business case, one, you're going to have to talk about the current state of affairs and what's working and what's not working and why. And it even includes a discussion about the current cost of delivering those services. Then it should begin to talk about you know, what What would a transformational effort look like? And at the end of the day, what those benefits would be. And would those benefits be just better quality services, greater transparency, higher performance overall of those functional areas? But would it also include cost reduction? And if so, what amount of cost reduction? So with every business case that I've ever worked on, it's it's had to have a very rich and robust financial model that we can continue to refine as we learn more information. And that's an important point. A business case should be, in my, in my view, a very dynamic living document. Because as you learn more, you're going to have to use that data to put it into a financial model. So for instance, if I'm going out and I am actually contracting out for a certain set of services, and, and the vendors that actually bid on this work actually bid lower than I had necessarily anticipated, I want to make sure that that's reflected in my business model so I can demonstrate that there's even greater cost savings than I might have anticipated one or two or three years earlier. The financial model you talk about, one of the challenges, and, and I'll go back to this, is is the money issue, right? You, as you, as I had you repeat a couple of times, it takes money to spend money. Did you have to come up with this idea that, well, here's how we're going to you know, save some money and then use that savings to reinvest? Or did your leadership at Commerce was able to get some money out of OMB slash Congress to fund at least the startup? Very interestingly, the reason I put together this business case is because I also wanted to show what the total cost of investment or capital investment was going to have to be made in this enterprise services operation. I, I wanted to make sure that there were no surprises and that I was not necessarily on a day-to-day basis nickeling and diming them, right? So that was an important point so that everybody's eyes were wide open as to how much this would cost to stand it up. From there, um, my stand-up costs came from a working capital fund, and the working capital fund is largely a contribution that all of the bureaus uh, would make to the department for departmental management services. So, again, there had to be levied a greater fee on all of these various bureaus in order to fund my stand-up costs. So I was under a great deal of scrutiny. scrutiny. And as you might suspect, any dollar that I might have received from the Working Capital Fund often meant that somebody, another organization, was receiving less. So, you know, again, we had to socialize all of that, those changes well in advance of us actually implementing the shared services model. 
And just to put a finer point on this, help me out. So if normally Bureau X paid $5 a seat for those uh, HR services, maybe you said we want $6 this year, and they had to budget that in and figure that out, and you were told, hey, this is how much we're asking for, and sell it to them in many ways, convince them that this this, this was important and matters to them. Correct. And I had to I clearly had to explain to them what they were going to get from it in both a cost and quality basis. So while it may cost more for the first one or two years, for instance, please understand that by year three or year four, you'll see a reduced cost and you'll see a much better quality service. All right. Let's talk about some of those successes then. Over the three years, what were you able to accomplish? You mentioned HR, IT and acquisition and financial management is coming. Well, let me get a little bit more detailed in that regard. First, Enterprise Services built a one-stop shop portal so that employees can initiate their own actions, see where those actions are in that transaction process, and even make inquiries online. That shouldn't be new to the federal government, but it relatively is uh, to many federal agencies and departments. We stood up a contact services center so that people can make calls or send emails to make requests or inquire about their actions. Again, one place to call, one number to call to find out where your actions are related to HR, IT, or acquisition, for instance. We migrated all of everyone um, to one common human resources management system. It's actually Treasury's HR Connect system, and it was not a flawless migration, but it was the best one that the federal government had ever seen. We also took over the uh, learning management system, and now we, you know, Enterprise Services has responsibility for the operations and maintenance of those. Uh, we transitioned all PAR, personal action request, pay and benefits actions for most all of the bureaus to enterprise services. And, and interestingly enough, we now price those, those services on a transaction basis. So, for instance, we might have paid this figure for PAR processing in the past. Today, this is what we pay. We're delivering acquisition services on a reduced cost to the department's eight smallest bureaus and the office of the secretary. So enterprise services does not buy satellites, does not buy ships for NOAA, right? But almost every other type of of transaction or acquisition could be handled by one centralized organization, and that be enterprise services. We assumed responsibility for the strategic sourcing program. And if, and if, if anybody understands strategic sourcing, it basically means that we are leveraging the buying power of the entire department's population to get a pri- better price on the commodities that we buy on a daily basis. And so as a result of that, Commerce has been heralded even by OMB for having seen tens of millions of dollars of cost avoidance in strategic sourcing alone. And then finally, um, we were delivering managed printing services to the department. So, and that shouldn't be a big deal for a lot, but just making sure that people did not have their own standalone printers any longer, but actually had to get up and go to a service center to, to deliver that was an incredible cost savings to the department. All right, so there's a lot there. Let's unpack it a little bit. The, the biggest challenge you had in getting this done, was it the convincing of people to, if you will, stop hugging their, their individual printers or what? In the case of printers, it was. It's, it's largely, I want one on my desk. I want it to be able to print when I want it to print. But there's largely no need. And then more importantly, even 
uh, when you do set up a printer in a service center, for instance, a business center, you want to make sure that your paper is not just sitting there for anybody to review, particularly if it might in include sensitive information. So again, we created even a badging capability so that once you walked up and badged to that printer, your, your material would begin to print. The cost per page went down remarkably on the basis of that, and clearly we were no longer owning printers. We were actually delivering managed printing services. So we didn't have any of the technology costs associated with those printers, which meant that when they broke down, it was somebody else's responsibility. When there was no toner in it, it was somebody else's responsibility. When there was a paper jam, it was somebody else's responsibility. It just largely meant that suddenly the headaches associated with printing were gone. Broadly beyond printing, I mean, th that's a great example of, of getting people to understand, hey, you don't need your own printer. Here's how we'll ensure that your information is going to stay secure, but also that it's not that big of a change, generally speaking. But what were some of the other challenges you had in getting some of these other kind of big changes to, to take place and, and be successful? The delivery of human resources services is the toughest challenge for any organization to have. And that's largely because you are touching people's lives daily. You know, especially if you're actually handling their personal action requests or compensation-related matters or benefits. And so getting an organization to understand that perhaps they didn't have to go down the hall and touch their HR person to ultimately get the service that they needed and, and could do it by it going on a portal or making a phone call or sending an email largely meant it was a major change um, initiative that they had to be comfortable with. And so not all of that goes well, but what I've also learned is that um, we found more specifically there was a lot of garbage in the systems that existed before, so it was garbage in, garbage out. We clearly had to do a lot of data cleanup. Um, we also had to teach reteach people how to actually use the systems that existed, as well as to make sure that they were compliant with all the steps that were necessary in leveraging that system and not to shortchange it or circumvent it. So that, again, you know, any of these major transformational initiatives require a significant amount of what we would call change management work just to get people to work a little bit differently and appreciate what they need to do in order to get a better quality service at reduced cost. The change management piece is something we hear time and again as the biggest challenge. And the other piece of it that I think it's, it's part of it is changing the processes. You can't just say, well, we're going to stick with these same old processes and make the systems fit into them. I think that's why we've seen so many failures around shared services over the years. How much process change did you have to do? Was that part of that, that beginning stage where you said, I'm going to define the current processes and then start changing them to meet the technology or just to update them because they have, as you said, they haven't been updated in 20 years. Was that also a big lift? It is a big lift, but my approach, and I think most commercially minded people would like my approach, was to really understand the processes as embedded in the technology. So if you're going to leverage a new technology platform as we did for HR, and Treasury uses PeopleSoft 9.2, it meant that there were processes, federalized processes, that we needed to employ and get rid of our, each of our own bureaus. So literally, we had groups of people that sat around a room and looked at the process step by step to handle any specific action, a personal action request, for instance, or a pay action or a benefits action. And we had to make sure that each of the bureaus and the office of the secretary agreed to one standard process. 
And then any time that there were any outliers, we had to understand why there was an outlier to that process to see whether we were willing, in fact, to make a change to accommodate that one bureau. So it is a monumental effort, but it is well worth the time because at the end of the day, not all of those processes or all of those steps or all of those various actions had to be part of the end-to-end process. And what happened when you had an issue where someone said, I'm not changing, I'm not going to do this? Is, is that where your leadership, the Commerce leadership, whether it was uh, current Secretary Ross or previous secretaries came in and, and kind of had to put the fist down? Yes, as you always do. In the case of our HR processes, I brought our Chico, Kevin Mahoney, to the table, and he was the final arbiter. Um, on whether there was that was going to be a process change or not. So in every respect, you needed to have a very responsible individual come in and not just argue on behalf of a change, but more importantly, make a decision that everybody had to abide to. Glenn, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk more broadly, not just the, the success at, at Commerce, but what can be done going forward as more agencies get into the shared services world. My guest is Glenn Davidson the former executive director of enterprise services at the Commerce Department and the current human capital transformation executive at Deloitte. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Everyone knows that even good people fall on hard times. Your credit cards get maxed out and you get behind on your taxes. Unfortunately, the IRS is not as understanding and they won't stop until they collect. They have the power to take your paycheck, freeze your bank accounts, even your home or business could be at risk. It's simply not worth it to take on the IRS by yourself. You need to call the experts at Optima Tax Relief. When you call, be sure to ask about the Fresh Start Initiative. It's a special IRS tax debt assistance program that could save you you thousands, even tens of thousands. Optima will immediately provide you with a team of professionals who could protect you from the IRS, ensuring that you get the best possible outcome. The Better Business Bureau has awarded them an A-plus rating, and you will too. So put the hard times behind you and call Optima today for a free consultation. Call 800-354-2840. 800-354-2840. 800-354-2840. Optima Tax Relief. Some restrictions apply. For complete details, please visit OptimaTaxRelief.com. The place. Navy Marine Corps Memorial Stadium. The team. Navy football. The time is now. The 2018 Navy football season is underway, and you don't want to miss it. This season, Navy is looking to make their 14th bowl game in the last 15 years and reclaim the Commander-in-Chief's trophy. Come with friends or bring the family and be a part of the best game day experience in America. Tickets for all home games are on sale now at NavyGameDay.com. Homeland Security never takes a day off. Here's American Military University's Dr. Monique Koreshkanazi discussing her journey from the Department of Defense to higher education. I worked for the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Dr. Ash Carter. He was like, I know you're going to pursue your doctoral degree, and if you want to keep teaching at higher levels, you're going to need that. And I was sold. It was then that I was like, you know, the importance of education. I'm going to keep going to school, keep going to school. And I got my doctoral degree in 2015. Listen to the entire discussion at federalnewsradio.com, keyword AM. American Military University is a respected educator to national security professionals, a distinction earned by never forgetting their students are priority one. They keep tuition affordable, attract field-tested faculty, and provide curriculum that helps keep you ahead of industry trends. When you enroll at AMU, you join a community respected by area employers. Get started at amuonline.com. AMU is part of American Public University System, which is certified to operate by CHEV. 
Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Glenn Davidson, the former executive director of enterprise services at the Commerce Department and the currently the human capital transformation executive at Deloitte. Now, Glenn, again, we've been talking about shared services. This is a major initiative for the Trump administration. I think your experience at the Commerce Department of the last three years really shows how shared services can work and what can get accomplished. You went through a lot of the accomplishments, but the big question is, are you seeing a difference? Is the Commerce Department better today than they were three years ago? How are you looking at that? How are you measuring that? For the purpose of strategic sourcing, which is when we buy those commodities um, on behalf of the department, we can see an immediate improvement. And that, that's largely we're getting a better price for any of the products that we bought in the past, and we can actually quantify that. And OMB has actually already cited tens of millions of dollars of cost avoidance for the Department of Commerce because of that initiative, number one. Number two, even in acquisition services, when we would go outside of the department, we would be charged a certain percentage above that particular procurement for that procurement, right? And even in the department itself, there was a certain percentage load on every acquisition that was made. Enterprise Services today continues to reduce that cost of their delivery of services significantly. So they're already, again, saving the department money or at least cost avoidance as it relates to any of the procurements. In the area of human resources, we're already seeing more importantly, qualitative improvement, but one day we will see quantitative improvement. And the qualitative improvement is now people know that their, their actions are going to be performed within one single pay period as opposed to multiple pay periods. Now they know where their transaction is within that process, what, you know, whether, when it's been initiated and where it is and when it's finally concluded. Today, we're also finding out that if any backlog of actions that may have, uh, may have existed, could have sat there for weeks or months or even years, are now all being settled. So as a result, people are getting answers to questions that may have taken months or years to ultimately get those answers. So again, qualitative improvements significantly already. And then finally, just by having a focus of enterprise services on the HR function overall, you're beginning to see much more activity towards improving the recruiting and hiring of people. So I fully expect that where there happen to have been a significant number of funded vacancies, those are now being filled in a much more aggressive and timely fashion than they have in the past. What's still left to be done? What's on the to-do list that you left for the team back there? And, and who took your place? Did you have a deputy? Did someone step in as an acting role as the executive director of enterprise services at Commerce? Let's start with the last question first. Jamie Krauk, a long-term NOAA employee who served as my program manager and ultimately my deputy assumed the role of acting executive director. I was delighted to see that Karen Dunkelly, the deputy secretary of the Department of Commerce, recognized in her the talent and the capability to be able to lead, number one. Number two, as far as things to be accomplished, there's still a lot to be accomplished. We at least I feel as if enterprise services is now institutionalized. It is here to stay within the Department of Commerce, but there's a lot of work to be done. First and foremost, the organization has to com continue to deliver quality human resources services to the rest of the department. We got some of that work done under scope. Additional scope will, will be taken on uh, within the next year. Also, financial management. The department operates four different financial management systems, Three of them are older than 20 years. It's now time for this 
organization to have one unified financial management system and ultimately to, to deliver a better quality set of services to all of the stakeholders that currently receive those services. And then it goes on, right? We can continue to deliver additional IT services. We can, we can deliver uh, even grants management services. So the list of opportunities or possibilities for that organization are endless, and it's just going to take other champions to help drive that for enterprise services to re really achieve its total ambition. One of the things that you experience and you're leaving them to do is the financial management lift, and, and that's probably been the hardest one that we've seen across government. More agencies have tried it, and more agencies seem to have failed at that. What do you think is, is from, from the experiences that you've had, what are you leaving the Commerce Department folks, or that team at, at the Enterprise Services, that they can make sure that the financial management piece is successful? Talk maybe about why they're in a better position to, to be successful there. Well, one of the changes that has occurred, I think, in this administration as opposed to the prior administration was how some of these services were going to be delivered in the future. And as you recall, Jason, the last administration had hoped that other agencies and departments would migrate to modern financial systems elsewhere within the department. So in other words, you would have commerce either going to transportation, agriculture, or treasury for its financial management system. I think what this administration is open to is having an, a large department such as Commerce own and operates its own financial system. And if that's in fact the case, just getting 12 disparate bureaus in the office of the secretary on one financial system in itself is a heavy lift. You know, doing it across the government is even a bigger one. So that's why I tend to believe that it will be, it will be more successful. And there's certainly the I would say the leadership within that department to do so. I think the point you're making here is, is clear that this administration is definitely taking a much broader view of shared services than the last one. And one of the biggest challenges of moving, for instance, you guys moved to Treasury Arc, is the Economy Act, which is you know does not allow the shared service providers to make a profit, a quote unquote profit, or even make any extra money to put into systems upgrades and changes and hiring more people. Do you see that as as the the, the current process by which these shared services and government are set up as the biggest challenge for agencies? Or is there something else you'd see as why shared services is uh, not been as successful as many thought it would be over the years? I think there are lots of reasons why shared services has worked and why it hasn't worked in the past. Internally to U.S. Department of Commerce, I would say, you know, my biggest lessons learned from my own experience were, you know, do not underestimate people's aversion to change. You just have to continue to drive it. Two, don't under, you know, understand that you cannot over-communicate during a transformational journey. It just, it's a constant set of reminders and emphasis on why you're doing it. And then I would also say be really careful in terms of who your, your vendor partners are going to be and make sure that they understand that this is a true partnership and that they have to be all in um, to be able to deliver that service. Those are lessons learned for me with, within internally, but I also see from an external perspective, you know, one, it takes will. It takes an unwa unwavering commitment to do this. Transformational change is not easy. It can hurt, but you have to have stick-to-itiveness to get it done. And oftentimes, people turn their back on new initiative when it starts to get a little painful or it's not quite operating as well as you had hoped it might be. You know, it takes capital. 
Um, we talked about it before. You can't mount major change on a shoestring budget, or you can't do it on the basis of savings. Where does such capital come in these budget-constrained times? We have to find innovative ways to actually bring capital to these departments and agencies to mount these big initiatives. And then it takes time. No one should expect results in a year or two, and they shouldn't even expect it within one term of an administration. It takes time. And so, again, it's just you know, driving forward constantly in order to do it. And if any of those things are really absent in somebody's mindset or their ability to deliver the capital, it's not going to work. How many times during the last three years did you think this wasn't going to work? How many times did you were you about to throw your hands up and, and give up? Ever have that feeling? Yes, um, at least on three separate occasions. And, and largely, and, and things occur, it's, it's when a source of funds might dry up or, it, or there tends to be a change in um, whether it be political or career leadership that may or may not be on board with the initiative. Or it may be that you, know, you have trouble delivering a new service and people get really upset with you because you know, it's not going quite as well as planned. It, 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 if nothing else, and I will repeat this, for anybody to do this, it takes persistence and tenacity. And without it, you shouldn't really mount it. Is it worth it? It's absolutely worth it. The benefits can be tremendous, and that is, you know, better quality services at lower cost. But, you know, know that achieving that vision is hard and requires, as I said earlier, persistence and tenacity. Glenn, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk more broadly, not just the, the success at, at Commerce, but what can be done going forward as more agencies get into the shared services world. My guest is Glenn Davidson, the former executive director of enterprise services at the Commerce Department and the current human capital transformation executive at Deloitte. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is Scott Massioni. Follow me for the latest news critical to the defense community on Twitter at S Massioni WFED. That's S M A U C I O N E WFED. Today's Cyber Insider is Mark Orlando, Chief Technology Officer for Cyber at Raytheon. Security teams that protect and defend against bad actors and nation states alike must expect the unexpected. A security breach can happen in minutes, causing disruption and harm to your agency. What does it take to win the battle against advanced cyber attacks? A security team proactively detecting and responding to advanced threats using a powerful combination, threat intelligence, analytics, and automated security tools. Raytheon's highly skilled threat analysts understand the humans behind the most advanced cyber threats and proactively hunt them before they cause damage. Our cyber-as-a-service offerings provide proactive people, process, and technology to mature your agency's security posture. When everything is connected, security is everything. Raytheon works closely with government agencies, businesses, and nations to defend against advanced cyber threats across every side of cyber. Learn how at Raytheon.com cyber. Government agencies and modern enterprises face the threat of cyber attacks every day. You need cyber defense on the backbone of your network, not just at your firewall. Trust Verizon as your ally on the security battlefront. Experience and insights from managing our global networks help to detect, prevent, and respond to cyber attacks. Managed security services give you the visibility and situational awareness you need to protect your entire network. Verizon, we don't wait for the future, we build it. VerizonEnterprise.com slash federal security. Hi, this is Senior Correspondent Mike Causey. In Washington, we follow the money, especially since it's yours every week on your turn with Mike Causey. Whether it's your pay raise, a major change to your retirement package, or the chances of rifts or buyouts, we're on it because we know how hard you work and what it means to you. 
Give us a listen Wednesday mornings at 10 a.m. on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, or subscribe to your turn on iTunes or Podcast One. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Glenn Davidson, the former executive director of enterprise services at the Commerce Department and the currently the human capital transformation executive at Deloitte. Now, Glenn, again, we've been talking about shared services. This is a major initiative for the Trump administration. I think your experience at the Commerce Department of the last three years really shows how shared services can work and what can get accomplished. How many conversations have you had before you left or now that you have left with other agencies, other, you know, the CIO Council, OMB, about your your process to move to shared services? Because as I said in the very beginning, I've always thought that that your approach, the, the commerce approach, looking internally first, not trying to bite off too much, and really just trying to, to fix their own house before they start looking at somebody else's house, so to speak, was the right way. How many conversations have you had to try to share those experiences? I've had a tremendous number of conversations. It's a really good question, Jason. Multiple agencies and departments have sat in the sub-basement of the U.S. Department of Commerce with my team and me to discuss our path, our transformation journey, effectively. And my point of view has always been, yes, I think you can benefit from what we're about to share with you. But more importantly, we built so many artifacts in this in this whole effort, whether it be the business case, whether it be standardized processes for HR, whether it be a new procurement approach, all of that has been paid for by taxpayer dollars and should be available to every single agency and department across the federal government. Why not benefit from somebody's initial effort here and see, maybe not replicate it, but if nothing else, maybe adapt to it, you know, on your own with, you know, understanding your own nuances and your own needs. Do you think shared services in terms of not just what you what you did at Commerce, but more broadly, what's the future look like for government? I mean, do you see a big move? Do you see just a bunch of po- small pockets of moves? You know, based on your experience, where where is this effort going over the next you know three to five years? What I'm happy to say is that it has been consistent through each administration. You made the point that shared services was originally least discussed in the president's management agenda under George W. Bush, right? But it continued during the Obama administration and is clearly top of mind in the Trump administration. That delights me because at least there's an understanding that this makes just good business sense. It's not political. It's all about, you know, doing good you know, making greater, best use of taxpayer dollars for delivering services to the taxpayers as well as to employees of the federal government. So I think that there, it's it's the right cause, but I think there are going to have to be different approaches to get it. I've always been of the view that, you know, as for the government writ large, I would encourage officials to focus on intra-departmental initiatives as opposed to inter departmental initiatives. You know, getting buy-in among all the bureaus or agencies within the department is hard enough. You know, getting buy-in across government is exponentially higher. You know, once those large departments and agencies ultimately make those decisions, then you can start having conversations about how do we consolidate further. Who's doing the best job in delivering HR? Who's doing the best job of delivering an IT service? You know, over a period of time, you might decide that I don't need to do that anymore. I'm going to migrate over here. So, you know, I think if you continue to provide incentives to federal career and political leadership to drive this initiative that they will. That incentive piece is tough. And I think with the budgets 
you know, tightened so much, and now things have loosened up a little bit, though I think maybe a lot of agencies would tell you their budgets are still pretty tight. The money, a lot of times, is the selling point. But like what we've seen with, for instance, cloud computing as an example, in the end, it's not really the money. It's the better capabilities. It's the better services to your customers. Is that enough? Do, do, is that going to be enough to get people moving? One, I think the way that you drive shared services across federal government is for the mission-focused professionals to demand a better quality service from those who are delivering mission-enabling services. That's number one. Don't just settle for what you're receiving today. Ask for better service in a more timely fashion. That's number one. Number two, I really think that there needs to be a better understanding of what shared services can deliver. What are the benefits associated with it? Many people don't even understand what it's done in the commercial sector or where it's even worked in the, in the federal or other public sector agencies. I do think that, you know, a strong edict um, would be helpful, you know, whether that came from the White House or whether it be, be Congress, um, to drive not a, only a better quality service or cost reduction. But, you know, finally, I, I think – organizations would take on this initiative much more aggressively or be willing to take it on more aggressively if, in fact, they had budget to be able to do so. And that's largely has stopped organizations in the past from being able to fund these kind of transformational initiatives is just the lack of funds capital outlay in order to achieve their ambitions. Glenn, this has been a fascinating discussion. I really appreciate your time. And, and again, we're sorry to see you go and you know leave government after three years, but it's obviously that the change you made was pretty significant. So the, the last question of our interview has to be, would you do it again? You know, would you come back to government? You know, Was this a great experience? This was a really great experience. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. And, and the reason being, one, I saw how the sausage is made, right? To be a, a consultant or a con government contractor, you think you have a pretty good idea, but until you get on the inside, you really don't understand what is taking place and how decisions are being made. Number two, I really just saw um, the incredibly motivated individuals who, to, to public service life. And even my team, more specifically, was just a group of exceptional individuals who were driving very hard to achieve something that they thought was important to the department. And most of these people had a mission focus in their life, and so they saw how broken it was, and they wanted to fix it. And then finally, I'm hoping um, that that experience will make me a better consultant on the outside world, that that experience itself will allow me to ha understand what it takes to get something done and be a little bit more patient and, and know exactly where I can help and where I can't help. Very well said, and, and uh, we'll thank you for your service. My guest has been Glenn Davidson, the former executive director of Enterprise Services at the Commerce Department and the current human capital transformation executive at Deloitte. Glenn, thank you so much for your time today, and thank you again for your service to the country. And thank you for having me here, Jason. You've been listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.